And I'll be silent slumber, keep the winds asleep, the winds asleep, alas, and well may and weep, no cannot lies in slumber deep. They lake and place I fair and free, mid rocks their guardian chivalry, and how she all let man learn liberty from crunching wind and lashing sea. Tri kindle forusnat kach norche, fir agnad egna. Claro moshe shod a chalamol lachlin, tir grahoir sklaire clodoir si. Nidach kupla shachtenu he nau no kudigig dein a kille a hahelen a leche, an far aldanach graver deinasha, kara casement tigs vikfirish, karan fukalentishin James Stevens. Vi chedis gor bliens rustige, agus dagshe arianer eding a linge. Mar a jarvín a chara semaso de lárga. Dorainig skélavás kulum i lochrin, tránóna an lé a kúrga. Agus mehan ártír gúlta hér a gúntaf vi ó. Fí sakarig dinamíntar agam mehamánt ar chúrd chúrge, tráis filagam ar vrákia, ach dvítasach egam ásaram. So in a shiri goraviga, a gahar gilna gloire. The heel column and altar a darigar hole. Agus's dain me goravahanachara fianan ma column, no modern, er a get dinner a oshka lord, a love er uskal getting of a hosto. Gorgar gormuniog crev don glashkadel. Agus nach moed agor darud the carde na clarsi cael clarsocha, mor dertha gwyl reisi diafar fylhaol ach fis a chydora. Nyr hwyr aga agos uyn ada chun sgeil chylim i lochlin a rywa, agos a cyrta hwyrta. Dyn a loch gian uil a ba colym, agos tau cydachta peyart argybse. Aurani bean agus gaelgoer leofa. Nir vishtagum e haulu le karul ildhanach o dhala. Filet an shachtu i shdiag. Atha umraitach fos. E masg lucht skeltig inchint dan tanagraum. Er a iltacht e drehev agus e gadana eag sula. Vi kael er na lewede da ilchig sefe e chorhan na dri gynil. Vi kael er na balede chor sefeald an bobl. Vi kalde det hæhørers under tangen gælge. Og kæger færd på blivegående i røve, bevægget du chefen røve der var øje, når det kæsje rørhørt en løsjet i nasjonte hide. Bulldanen kan makke, men vi nægger for banekinedegøing. We all lived in Rathgar all our lives, and he went to the Holy Ghost College in St Mary's, and graduated from that into the university, where he did Celtic studies. He was always interested in Irish and in music and in all the folklore of Ireland. Well, my father was the proprietor and owner of O'Loughlin, Murphy and Boland in Dorset Street. And we all used to go in and out weekends and Cullum got his wish for printing there. Then he started on his own in the what he called the candle press in Harkwood Street 
in a, a house called the Craft Workers, where they had stained glass and arts and crafts, and Colin had the back room there, and personally I set type there for him, and he published um, poems by Geraldine Plunkett and poems by Seamus O'Sullivan, and oh, quite a number of books. He was one of the last links with the IRB, and he claimed to his dying day that Pierce never forgave him for going north on MacNeil's instructions to cancel the Rising. Previously he had organised Wicklow and had printed a seditious newspaper called The Spark. He had also been involved as a liaison officer in Kerry, a key man in the ill-fated effort to land Casement's guns. He took no part in the Civil War. The very thought of Civil War appalled him. Printing was in his blood, so to speak, and the books he published at the sign of the three candles are regarded as the work of a master printer, Padrigo Talior. Uh, well, Colum's life in the world of books uh, began, it could be said, in the winter of 1916, when with Shalma Gullana, who was one time editor of Antliosalish and who later became a district justice in the country Galway, they formed the idea of publishing a series of booklets of Irish interest. Uh, they chose one of the triads of Ireland, the one which describes truth, nature, knowledge as the three ca- uh, three candles to light up every darkness. And uh, this seemed a suitable letter for the sort of book he meant to issue. So uh, the name of the three candles, three candle press was chosen, and a fellow craft worker, William McBride, uh, made the device of the three branched Ireland candlestick, which afterwards graced the title page of the publications. Uh, the little firm moved about a bit in its early days. From Atgar Road, where he lived, to Harker Street, and then to Dawson Street, from Dawson Street back to Harker Street, uh, until eventually Cullum set up his own press in Fleet Street in 1926. He was delighted to find, by the way, that a large sign signboard hung over the shop door. This he painted with the sign of the three candles, and some years later, I suppose about 1932, uh, he registered the name under the Companies Acts, or whatever one calls the Act, which registers companies and their names. At any rate, Cullum, and indeed the public too, uh, thought the name new and, uh, and rather original. And many years passed before he realised that he was not the originator at all, only the reviver of the sign of three candles, for in the years between 1730 and 1750, uh, there was a Thomas Brown selling and publishing books in High Street in Dublin at the sign of the Three Candlesticks. Brown himself, by the way, was a marvellous character, one of the Catholic bookmen of the penal days, but, uh, of course, that's another story. Cullen published well over 100 books, and he acted as a publisher for quite a substantial number of college annuals and commemorative volumes. It would be it would be difficult to single out any one volume and say that this was his best work. But the book which stands out in my mind is, is Fade Screaving Owen Vic Nail. This was a collection of scholarly studies uh, of Irish interest. Oh, they range from folklore to archaeology and prehistory, Celtic languages, early medieval Irish history and so on. Uh, the whole collection was intended to honour Owen MacNeil, and indeed it did this very well, uh, to honour him on his 70th birthday. Uh, the, the volume was edited by Father Ryan, a well-known Jesuit scholar, and it was a handsome volume by any standard, and was laid out with uh, exquisite taste. It's, it's very scarce now. 
it is a thing of beauty. I think I started off by saying that Colin began his life in the world of books about 1916 or something like that. But I wonder if it could really be said of any bookman that he began to take an interest in books at any particular time in his life. I rather doubt it. It could be said that he does, in a way, give the answer to this question himself in a commemorative volume issued about 1936 by the Dublin uh, printing and bookbinding firm of Alex Thorne. In this book, he quotes an old advertisement in the Dublin paper of the early 18th century, which runs, I have it here, Wanted a man that has been bred to the vellum binding. One would want to hear that sentence from the lips of Colum himself, to realise the feeling he had for fine bindings and for handcrafts generally. This feeling is reflected in the works of his life under the sign of the three candles. He welcomed modern innovations, but regretted that the pace of life was leaving behind the old craft's hand-binding he loved so much. He gave voice to his feeling in this regard in the latter part of the 30s, and it is here that one can actually sense his feelings as an artist, clashing with the modern systems of placing covers on books. Yes, covers. That's the better word than, than bindings, for the sort of thing I have in mind. To compare fine bindings with covers or cases is rather like comparing, well, shoe boxes with finely wrought jewel cases. Both could be used for either purpose, but each has its own place. At any rate, Colum put it nicely when he said, So survives in these later days a remnant of that once glorious art which it marched out of the mists of antiquity, hand in hand with scribal work, and kept company with the art of printing throughout all its development. A sorry remnant, indeed, of a once proud handicraft which seemed, or seems, fated to disappear. For with the machine which dominates modern industry, it can make no compromise, being born of the living brain and moulded by the loving hand of man. A present-day publisher, Liam Miller, director of the Dolman Press, pays his tribute. I met Colum first shortly after I started the Dolman Press, which is 21 years ago, in 1951. But, of course, I had known his work for years before that. During my years in college in Dublin, I came to admire the books which came from the Three Candles, both from their scholarship and their content, and from the, to me, supreme quality of design, which uh, stamped them all with a kind of unique flavour. Was that something exceptional at the time? I think it was exceptional in Ireland. In fact, all of Colum's uh, output in publishing from the time he started the Candle Press in 1917 um, had the qualities of the man himself. He was a, a scholarly printer-publisher, more or less a Renaissance figure in the style of, let's say, Aldous, the, the great Venetian uh, 15th century publisher and typographer uh, who did who came to do something in Ireland which I think was very necessary through his own press which was to give uh, an image to Irish book production which it didn't have before then How do you think technically uh, without being too technical how do you think that he established his own style in printing and publishing? 
Well, he came to it with a love of print and also a love of the text. The Candle Press started off with a series of uh, booklets by Irish poets in its early years. Uh, they printed also a story by James Stevens, a little booklet called Hunger, uh, which is now very scarce and desired by collectors. Uh, works of a patriotic nature, writings by such figures as John Mitchell, um, these added up over the years to a very, very notable uh, publishing list. And as the years came on, went on, Colum's concerns for Irish matters became evident, both in the texts he printed and in the manner in which he printed them. His earliest uh, printings in the Irish language were done by borrowing uh, a classical typeface from the Trinity College Press, the typeface which George Petrie had made uh, to print Irish texts in the middle of the 19th century. And eventually Colum came to create his own great Irish typeface called Colum Kill, which appeared in the early 30s. Um, beside all this, he had a concern, as I say, for scholarship, for the texts. He was uh, a distinguished graduate of our university. In fact, he lectured in the university for many years, both in uh, Irish literature and in the library school in trying to uh, show the qualities of and the background, the history of book production to generations of Irish librarians. Um, all this, to me, added up to something unique in the, in the way of a person uh, when I started my own press, uh, Colum, in fact, sought me out because he thought that what I was trying to do, which was uh, in 1950 to publish the emerging young Irish writers, was closely attuned to what he had been doing all his life. And I paid many visits to him at the Candle Press, and he visited me on and off, and we always talked about typography. Uh, as the years went on, we uh, came to have mutual friends, not alone in Ireland, but, for instance, the great type designer, Victor Hammer, who had assisted and advised Colum when Colum was making his typeface in the 1930s. I came to know Hammer in the 1950s, towards the end of his life. To accompany Colum's uh, Colum Kill type, he had, in fact, adapted a, a typeface cut in Germany by Victor Hammer in the 20s, which was based on uh, Irish character, Irish uncial uh, writing. And this was adapted to make a display or titling font to accompany the text letters, which were the Column Kill, which were Column's own, I think, unique contribution. Column Kill, I think, is a unique typeface in many ways, in that it is the first typeface cut of an Irish character which goes outside the boundaries. It acknowledges the fact that our great achievements in lettering were not, in fact, texts in Irish. If you remember that the Book of Kells is a Latin Gospels and that it provides not only the 18 letters of the alphabet used in the written Irish language, but the full Roman alphabet. Colum designed his typeface along these lines. He designed his capital alphabet with um, 
an acknowledgement of the Roman origins of the capital letter forms. Other uh, designers working towards Irish lettering had produced a capital alphabet, which was just an enlargement of the uncial, or what we would call the small letters. Um, this, to me, was great typographic thinking. He also designed a sloped letter, what we would perhaps call an italic in character to accompany his lettering, so that in producing a typeface which had the full range of uh, equipment the printer would need, italic for emphasis or for special usages or for references, as well as what we might call an upright or Roman character, he gave to Irish typography in the 30s something which it had never had right from the beginning of printing in Ireland. But I suppose it's true to say that it's as a collector and as a printer of ballads that Colm O'Loughlin is best remembered. His enthusiasm was infectious, his influence in this particular field very great indeed. In the preface to his first important collection of ballads, published by himself at the Three Candles, he wrote, One thing I can claim with confidence, that every song in the book can be sung by anyone who has the ordinary Irishman's ear for music. I have sung them all myself, and here they are set in keys to suit the average voice. Let the singer approach them with patience and sympathy. He must avoid all exaggeration of dialect and resist the temptation to burlesque, for it is fatally easy. He must sing them quietly and naturally, dropping a verse here and there if he will, but telling the story completely. He will soon find that he has a rich store of entertainment, of a more universal appeal than any repertoire of operatic or classical song, and a sure bond of fellowship with Irishmen the world over. Furthermore, he will have gone a long way towards gaining an insight into the life and thought of our forebears, and he will link up with the genuine Gaelic tradition which we are seeking to restore. When the Irish language was fading, the Irish street ballad in English was the halfway house between the Irish culture and the new English way. Now that the nation is retracing its steps, is it too much to hope that we may pause again at the halfway house to find there the simple enjoyment of simple themes, to recapture the rhythm and the idiom of Gaelic poetry and music. Some years ago, Ciarán MacMahuna spoke to him about his songs and about the ballad printers of the Dublin of his youth, the likes of Dennis Devereux. He had no printing house of his own when I knew him, although at one time he had with a man called Muth who lived on it a couple of years ago. He was a linotype operator, and you'd see on the copies of the Daily Sinn Féin and the United Irishman, printed by Devereux Newton Company, 57, I think it was, Middle Abbey Street. Yes. Somewhere near where the, where the side door of the Independent is now. Well, afterwards, when I knew him, he used to come in to me to get me to set an odd ballad for him, and he'd get somebody to make stereos of it, to add to those Nugent's ballad sheets were his. Mm -hmm. And he used the name Nugent as a publishing name. And he, another name was Ryan's Irish Reciter. That was done by, by him. The man from God knows where is in that and mm -hmm. other such things. But his real name was? Was Devereux. Devereux. Dennis yes. Devereux. Yeah. Uh, he, he was never married. And I don't know where he lived, but it was somewhere up on the South Circular Road, I think, because he was making his way home on New Year's Eve one night, and apparently some weakness came on him, and he just shoved open one of the gates of St. Patrick's Park, and he was found dead there in the morning. 
That's what the end of Dennis Devereux. But he had an, an extraordinary collection in his head of ballads. And he used to uh, he used to, to haunt Thomas Street in the days before Christmas, the oldest, listening to the ballad singers from the country and trying to get hold of their songs. I, I meant to ask you that because in your first book you you when you have this little supplement about Dublin ballads, you mentioned uh, the place to hear ballads was Thomas Street on Saturday night and especially on Christmas Eve. Yes, especially on Christmas Eve. Old John Kenny, the piper, came in to me uh, about the year before he died. Whenever he was up Ratgar, he'd come into my mother's house and he'd play for us there. He wasn't the best piper in Dublin, but his wife was the best fiddle player. She was the queen of Irish fiddlers, or he'd say. But he couldn't keep time unless he was with them. If he was playing with the wife or with other pipers, he'd keep her. But he used to wander off and his time was very erratic. But John Kenny, how are we getting on, Johnson? This was either the day before Christmas Eve. Ah, so said he, no turkeys, no geese, no crowds in Thomas Street. It's a bad year. <laughs> because the country carts used to come in there, and you know the carts with the, with the spuds at the back, the spud yeah. shafts at the back. Well, they used to be tilted up. The horses were taken away in stables somewhere. And the whole of the front shafts used to be festooned with geese and turkeys. That was the way the country people used to sell the stuff, on the floor of the street, as they say in Yeah. That and was in Thomas Street. In Thomas Street, yes. And, of course, Britain Street, that's Parnell Street now, that was another good place in mm. those days. Because I, I'm, I got many a ballad from the ballad singers, by it in the street, the night of the Ragman's Ball, and nearly shooters in Britain Street, I got that. Come, listen to me for a while, my good friends, one and all. And I'll sing to you a verse or two About a famous ball Now the ball was given by some friends Who lived down in Ash Street In a certain house in the Liberties Where the ragmen used to meet Well the names were called at seven o'clock And every man was on the spot And to show respect for the management Every ragman brought his mud I must admit that I brought mine at 25 minutes to nine And the first to stand up was Karen Grace For to tell me I was late Ah, then up jumps Pumpy Sudlum And he says I think somehow Be the way they're all going on tonight Cos I'm looking for a row Now listen here, Grace, if you want your face You better not shout our ball Cos a lot of hard shaws going to be here tonight To respect the ragman's ball well, tis my one, you're a queer one now, and pity your heart to be. Ah, when up jumps Eliza Boland, and she told her to hold her breath. Ah, then my one made it loud at her, she missed her and hit the wall. And the two of them went in the ambulance tonight at the ragman's ball. Oh, of eating we had plenty now, as much as we could hold. We drank Brady's little blind porter, until around the floor we rolled. In the midst of all the confusion, someone shouted for a song. When up jumps old Dunlavin and sings, keep rolling your burden along. Then we all sat down to some ham pairings when everything was quiet. And for broken noses, I must say, we had a lovely night. Black eyes, they were in great demand, not to mention split heads and all. So if anyone wants to commit suicide, let them come to the ragman's ball. I was working in Fleet Street in Dublin in an electrical shop there, about 1957 or so, and uh, Colin O'Loughlin's shop 
which was right next door to the sign of the three candles, the printing press. And a man who used to work from there, a fellow called Paddy Waters, brought me in one of his collections, the first collection of street ballads. And I was thrilled to get it. And it was what really started me off singing. And from that, of course, he produced the second book of Irish ballads. And it was a tremendous... Uh, contribution to to the Irish ballad revival and the Irish music revival, in fact, because with the singing of the, these ballads, they were always accompanied by a fiddle player or something like that who who played in maybe a couple of reels or something in, in between the sounds, you know, which gave ordinary people which had never heard Irish music presented in this way be, before, gave them a chance to, to hear it and appreciate it. And this way, I think he's contributed an awful lot and I knew Colm quite well I only met him in about 1964 or so and I had several nice sessions with him and very often I met him in O'Donoghue's which is a pub where a lot of Irish musicians now go but when I went there first it was just a civil servants pub and Colm used to often come in and see us there Colm and his wife and have a drink and uh he was very, very helpful if he wanted to know a song. He'd always invite you to go to his house and get it. He, he wasn't one of these people who felt that he was going to take the songs to the grave with him. He wanted everybody to know them. Brown Brannoch, himself an authority in Irish folk music, was one of those who came under Colm's influence. As a musician, I first made acquaintance with Colm something over 30 years ago. He was giving a lecture in the College of Signs under some scheme uh, intended to um, awaken interest in the national heritage. Uh, there was a tall, young lad there playing the pipes. I discovered afterwards to shame the senders, so I can still um, hear Cullum's voice and also the uh, Seamus's music. Afterwards then, I met him in the classical, just a Saturday afternoon gathering, often 40, 50, 60 people there, Colum, Finon, uh, Colum, O'Loughlin Hain, and Finon McCollum in, in charge, uh, teaching songs. Uh, often they'd have Hardebeck in there helping them at the piano, and other people occasionally turned up. I think they pressed everybody into service. Uh, Michael Bowles, I recollect, also been there on some occasions. Um, these were intended to have, to spread, popularise Irish songs among the people, and there were always, my recollection is that there were always uh, cruel, happy uh, kind of songs. I can still remember the whole 60 and they off, the top of the voice at Cuthroche and Ycoin, Pardino Raffida, Praps and Ol, Sony Winnell and that type, so that people who were totally ignorant altogether, the music were encouraged and attracted by the, the, uh, the melodies fine, simple, bold kind of things. Um, this was uh, an effort, we say, of Finon and of Colum in trying to propagate the Irish songs. Well, Colum, of course, too, filled another gap as far as singing was concerned when he brought out the Irish street ballads. But as Brandon Brannock points out, not only was Colum a collector of songs, but he was a composer of Irish music himself. That's not alone we say Colum's great achievement that he got people singing these kind of songs but 
really that there were songs and our songs being sung by people that who don't realise it was Cullum himself uh, composed the music to them. Uh, for instance, I wouldn't say that there is one in a thousand who could sing Shefama Wura, or perhaps an ode to the original errors of these things as found in Petrie, say. Uh, Cullum himself composed the air to which these two particularly are sung, and the they were taken up immediately and uh, altogether um, re- rejected or relegated the other, the original errors. He also composed Doni Hisham Mehel, Nefwailan Yala, and the music for Kronam Rashleva. And in addition, then, he was he composed the words for Anuns and all. He was found no difficulty whatsoever at all in making verses of that kind, with the result that. When you are confronted with songs from Colum, you can be never quite sure occasionally as to whether the the version was that as found by Colum or whether, in fact, it was as improved by him. He was interested also in the piping. When he was a young lad at college, he was sick of the uh, Common the Beebury, that's the War Pipe Association, it's around, oh, from 1900 1912, it was in existence. And... At the same time, he had a set of the other pipes, of Union pipes, Aurelian pipes. Uh, he was able to play on both. He played a bit on the harp and he played a bit on the fiddle. But you might say that he was never a, a great piper because with so many interests, Colum had never much time, as I say, to practice. But he did know all the old pipers, Dinny Delaney, Martin Riley and these, and went himself learning music from Nicholas Markham, from Jimmy Ennis, that's Seamus's father. He had a tremendous amount of uh, folklore about these people. And on one occasion he said to me, he threw a mark to the Wilson Glickenshaw. That's it's to be a pity if everything that was in this head was lost. So I was hoping that Colin perhaps may have left a, a diary behind him. He was very interested in Kyol, a magazine which I had started. And in one of the early issues he wrote a, a, an article for me. It's Horizy in Irish Music, I think it was called in which he was very harsh, we say, on the efforts at the National University and what they had done or what they had failed to do, perhaps, for Irish music, uh, so much so that they were compelled to defend themselves. Small wonder that they might feel the need to defend themselves when Colm came to the last paragraph of the Kjol article, the growl, as he put it, Morvilliskir. Is there in all Europe the like of it? In Dublin we have two universities, each awarding a degree of BMUS or DMUS, Young men, and perhaps young women, have emerged from these halls, as Bemus or Demus, without the slightest knowledge of the Irish language, the bedrock of Irish culture, without the slightest interest in Irish folk music, the never-failing source of authentic Irish melody. Where did Grieg, where did Smetana, where did Bartok, where did Sibelius, where, to go further back, did Mendelssohn, Bach, Liszt, whence did any of them draw the inspiration that still charms millions? Where but in the folk melodies, the folk songs, the native music of their own land. Pitiable indeed is the Demos of National or of Trinity, who must admit ignorance of the native language, of the native music of Ireland. So, once again I ask, where shall we find authority in Irish music? In all his activities, as a teacher in Scoilena, as a ballad singer and collector, as a printer, as a professor in University College Dublin, he was always anxious to share his knowledge. Alf McLaughlin, librarian, bookman and balladeer himself, remembers Colm. 
you know, when I got into library service, uh, I would have been, I suppose, uh, one of the sort of young Turks. You know, and uh, we tended to write off a lot of the work of our seniors. Ah, that's all just connoisseurship. You know, we want the equivalent in the book sciences of the guys who examine paintings with chemicals and this sort of thing instead of just looking at them and saying they're beautiful. And uh, the Irish book lover was a thing with which we principally associated Cullen's name at the time. The book lover was a magazine published from early in the century, originally from London. Uh, after the treaty, I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but about that time it came more from Dublin and was edited by Seamus O'Cassidy, who was another of these previous generation of book collectors and bibliographers. And uh, Cullum took it over about 1930 and for 20 years he edited it. And we always felt that there was uh, too much folksy stuff in it. Reviews of books which weren't strictly bibliographical and this sort of soft-line stuff where we wanted the real hard-line stuff. But uh, we realised afterwards, of course, that Cullum was perfectly capable of doing the hard-line work just as well as we were and probably much better. And... Uh, that a person reading the Irish Book Lover regularly would be not only well-informed bibliographically, but would have a good deal of something humane and cultured about it as well. And this, I'd say, is the mark of Cullum, both as a professional, as it were, and as a human being. Cullum had left the teaching staff in, in UCD a few years when I was a student and uh, had left behind him, as it were, a textbook which my friends and I thought was a revelation because uh, having learnt nothing of uh, Irish prose, prose in Irish in school except and some of the purely modern materials it was quite a revelation to find that uh, there was in fact a dignified tradition of tasteful prose going way back and uh, Cullum's collection was again something which has all the scholarly apparatus that it should have but at the same time, it's a book that anybody with, you know, honours leaving certs art of Irish could take up and read to enjoy. And there aren't that many books of the kind available in Irish. And uh, we always felt a very warm spot for this particular book. Another interest it had for me was later on, when I got interested in the history of Gaelic type, that I found that uh, most of my basic knowledge from, of it had come from facsimiles and so on in Tuberfirlan Gaelge. And there's a sort of a circular element in my relationship with Colin because a few years ago I was asked to re-edit uh, a book which had been done 50 years ago on the history of Gaelic type. And as I came to the point of uh, making an acknowledgement to the people who had helped me in it, I found, of course, that I had to mention Colin because anybody working on this must be in his debt. And I noticed then that Ned Lynham, the man who had written the original book in 1922 or three or four had also an acknowledgement to Colm O'Loughlin, which gave an idea of the, the length of time he had been active in this field. Colm O'Loughlin was a hospitable host, and in his house in Rathgar Road, many of the men listened and learned. Bulmer Hobson and Casement used to sing The Lass of Richmond Hill as a duet, with Colm accompanying them on the piano. Arthur Griffith could do a turn too. Quite a number. He used to fill up the, the United Irishman or the Sinn Féin sometimes, with squibs like that, that one that I have in, in the book there, The Pride of Pimlico, and, of course, the, the canal one, and the 13th lock, and the return from the 13th lock, and the name he signed was Shangana. 
Martin Walton published a little book, a selection made by Pierce Beasley for either sixpence or a shilling of poems by Arthur Griffith. Yeah. And he, he didn't claim that it was any way complete at all because a lot of the stuff was unsigned in the paper and might be Griffith and it might not. Yeah. But meeting Griffith, you think he was rather a solemn person. That's if you met him on a, on a specific occasion, if you weren't in the circle that used to carouse a bit with him, you would think he was a terribly solemn owl. But he had this streak of, of, of fun in him and he just to break out in the ballads. Cullum O'Loughlin seems to have been immensely popular with all those who worked for him, or rather who worked with him at his Three Candles press. Paddy Waters, whom Ronnie Drew mentioned earlier on, remembers Cullum O'Loughlin. I met him first in 1932 when he was doing most of the printing for the Eucharistic Congress. He was, um, what, uh, about 40 years of age at that time. I was quite young. He was doing a lovely job. It was my first experience of having, of seeing good colour printing. And in the curiosity of youth, I asked him, how did he do it? And he thereon took me in and explained the process. As I say, he was treated me as not talking down to me, but as an equal. Then we drifted apart for a number of years. I used to go in occasionally because he was running a very good bookshop in which there were quite a collection of books about the rebellion and its aftermath. One copy I bought of him was a cop book, a small book of verse about the lads who were imprisoned in England. I would love to have a copy of it today, but it's <coughs> out of print. In that was one poem that still remains in my memory, fragmentary, that was about a man who came to end up with no buttons on his trousers or on his jacket where they were taken as souvenirs. Uh, he at that time became very interested in Oiga. He was very interested in young people. They used his premises in Fleet Street as a type of office. You could go in there and you would meet all sorts of personalities uh, who at that stage were in the process of promoting the idea of an OIGA with full encouragement from Colm O'Loughlin. He printed their handbook for many, many years. I don't know whether they still give it to them or not. But he done the layout of that handbook, which was very magnificent. You could go in and you could talk to him about it and he would tell you all about it. Then we drifted apart for quite a long time we heard of one another from place to place and in the 50s we came back again together I ended up doing a period of work for him and in that period we became very very close we discussed many things because we had many people that we knew of one of the most interesting things at this stage was the publication of 50 Years of Liberty Hall. That book was compiled and in a very unique way. Four people 
got together twice a week and they argued and they talked about the period. Cathal O'Shannon, William O'Brien, Colm O'Loughlin and myself. It was very, very interesting because you had two people giving the point of view of the labour and socialist line. You had the other man, Colm, who had been a member of the executive committee of the volunteers at its formation, giving his side of the story, telling the stories that he loved to tell to his intimates of having gone to Valencia and Holy Week to seize the radio station. Help not coming to him because of the people who were drowned at Banastrand who were on their way to help him. And his return to Dublin and being told on the station at Limerick Junction that Casement had been arrested. His story of the interview and argument between Pierce and McNeil at which he was present as to whether the mobilisation should, should take place over the weekend or not. His dispatch from Dublin to Coal Island by O'Neill to try and stop the people in the north from rising. His period of working in the north of Ireland on a furniture van where he couldn't come back to Dublin. Uh, all these things come to mind when Cullum goes. His publication of the ballad book in the 1930s the one thing that will keep the name of Colm O'Loughlin alive because he kept the ballads alive. And my opinion is that but for the publication in the 1930s of the ballad book, we wouldn't have the scene we have today. And there was, of course, the private Colm O'Loughlin and this man, his sons, Dara and Ruan, and his daughter, Afric, knew best. A kind man, an old-fashioned man, respected and loved. He was a good musician, but not on the ordinary academic sense of the word. Um, he had a fantastic ear for music and an amazing memory for lyrics. Considering uh, the the years that he, you know, the time period when he, which he spent collecting ballads all over Ireland, there weren't such things as portable tape recorders, and he obviously committed it all to memory. Um, made notes of the lyrics and committed the music to his head. When he returned to Dublin, he used to enlist the help of one Joseph Crofts, otherwise known as the Bard, and Cullen would simply sing these things at him, is the only word, at him, and the Bard would uh, proceed to transcribe and translate this into conventional music, dots and quavers, etc. The Bard was also renowned for having tried and failed to teach Dara the piano. <laughs> yes. uh, and also, um, was also renowned for being the only person that Cullen would entrust the tuning of the family piano to. That was quite an event. It happened about once a month, or once every two months. But the event was always marked by a sort of family hold back on Saturday lunch when a certain amount of food had to be preserved for the bard. Mm-hmm. And this, as far as we know, was the only financial inducement which is ever, ever given to him either to come and play the piano or assist Cullum in his musical activities. They, they always ended up in, in good sessions, didn't they, with all sorts of tunes being played and nigger minstrel tunes and all sorts of strange oddities that be trotted out, you know? True. Yeah. 
Tell me something about the musical sessions he used to have. Oh, he used to have people like Dr. McSweeney, who founded the Cherry Orchard Hospital, and various contemporaries of, of his own from the University College, and people coming around for the evening. This was when I was quite small. Sometimes it was hard to remember, but we used to sit on the stairs and, and listen to the music, and we'd, we'd, we'd finally get down to the drawing room and do our own little bit. Uh, but there were they actually the songs, early music hall songs and things that normally wouldn't be associated with them as a ballad collector at all. And I think both our feeling for jazz grew from the, the ragtime the tunes that he used to play with the great verve and timing and swing in a certain way. And I think this is what we inherited from that side of the, the musical scene and I ended up playing that sort of music ourselves. Does he approve of your jazz activities? Not in the least. Hated it, hated it. It's always described as brothel music. And such phrases as, if you roll in the dirt, it'll stick to you, were you know, quite common. Yes, we, we used to have to creep out to jazz sessions. I remember putting the drums on the 15 bus, and when it reached Kenny's, Kelly's Corner, the drums rolled out in the street, nearly decapitating an old flower cellar, and cymbals crashing all over the place. But this was a normal occurrence. We had to creep out and, on bicycles and drums and so on and so forth to play at our various venues. The lawn story, I think, is, is one that comes to mind when the... Um, the band assembled, the jazz band assembled with various friends and odd people on the lawn, full line-up, trumpet, trombone, clarinet, uh, no piano, of course, I'd use a banjo on that instead, but, and a sousaphone from the, from the, of all things, the RAF, who was over on the holidays, were marching around playing some New Orleans ditties, and suddenly I heard the trumpet fade out, the clarinet fade out after that, the trombone, and I looked around and found them fleeing for their bicycles under the hedge, and on the steps of the house was Colin doing a sort of a war dance with a dressing gown, he'd been having a siesta, during the afternoon, he, get out, you're mad, get out, get out, the lot of you, get out to hell, one of his favourite phrases, get out to hell, if ever you, you, put, you crossed him in this way. But it was amusing to find out from Detective Officer Byrne, who lived across the road and was a friend of the family, that it was a, about 20, 30 years before that the police had to come up and order him off his own lawn for parading with the pipers banning and causing a nuisance to the neighbours. Mm. Um, what was he like as a father when you were young? There was a big age gap, wasn't there, between you? There was. There were certain things that had to be observed. You certainly couldn't speak to him with your hands in your pockets. It was, a, in his yes, eyes, yes. a marked sign of disrespect. Yes. He disliked intensely any um, American phrases like OK. That was virtually forbidden. In comics. comics. It was always corrected if it was yeah. used. Hated comics. They Hated were, comics. Yeah. They, were, they were even smuggled by us on, on buses from, from Galway out to Connemara to Josie Mungan's when we were staying there, hidden under mattresses and things like that. And we were severely thrashed for, for reading them. Not only did they contain rubbish, but they were badly printed. This was the, this was the, the great point there. We end this programme of tribute to Colm O'Loughlin with what his family told us was his favourite party piece, sung by his two sons, Dara and Ruan, and his daughter Afric. O oh, tis of a damsel, both fair and handsome, this story's true, or so I've been told. In the lens of Antrim, in a lofty mansion, her father gathered great stores of gold. He built a dungeon of bricks and mortar, a flight of steps they were underground and the food he gave her was bread and water no other comfort for her was found and every day he would sorely bait her 
Till to her father she thus began, O father, father, won't you relent now, and let me marry the servant man? And the servant man said, I'm often drunk, and I'm seldom sober, a constant rover from town to town. And when I'm dead, and my days are 